Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi. Rebecca, you and I got to do the interviews on this week's episode. Uh, we're going to hear from Caitlin Deaver and Jared Leto. Uh, let's start with your conversation with Caitlin, who has been a rising star for such a long time. And I don't know if uh, the Hulu limited series Dope Sick is necessarily a, a huge step up from her because we've been seeing her do so much great work. But I do feel like she's getting attention that many of us feel like she's deserved for many years now. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, uh, you know, she did Unbelievable in 2019 and then paired with Dope Sick. I think she's kind of carving out a really interesting specialty almost for her. And we do talk about that, that she's really interested in projects that have something to say and, and sort of give a voice to people who, you know, have maybe been ignored before. And so... She's just done a lot of good work and, and can do a lot of different things. You know, she was in Booksmart and Dear Evan Hansen. But I think her work in this sort of dramatic vein is especially noteworthy. Yeah. And this show is so complex and there's so many different storylines in it. But hers, I think, has stood out to anyone who watched it is really the most heartbreaking of them. She's playing this character who is really a stand-in for so many people who have been victims of the opioid epidemic. Yeah, it's it's um, so her character is is fictional and and sort of a composite of a lot of stories that they heard, um, but it's sort of the face of people who get addicted to opioids and, and it's a very tragic storyline and and she talked a lot about how she had to have basically like a Google spreadsheet to sort of keep track of the character's journey because they obviously shoot out of order and and I think she really delivers on that emotion that this story needed. Yeah, uh, anything else that you guys talk about in your interview that we should know about? Um, we talk about her interest in possibly directing someday. You know, she got to watch Olivia Wilde do that in Booksmart. And apparently her sister is a, a very good writer. So she does have interest in, in maybe doing that along um, with an action film. But what also was really fun to talk about is her parents who were professional ice skaters. So she had a really interesting upbringing. I did not know that. That is fascinating. I know. I mean, this girl's got to get a, an ice skating movie because she can skate. So we, we put that <laughs> out there in the world. <laughs> Uh, well, that sounds like we're uh, making news right here on this podcast. So let's hear what else is in store uh, in, with your interview with Caitlin Deaver. 
I'm so excited to be joined by Caitlin Deaver today, who stars in Hulu's Dope Sick. Um, it's such a powerful performance, so I'm really excited we get to talk about it. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to talk to you today. I guess let's go back and tell me how this role first came to you and if you had any concerns about taking it on or what was sort of your first impression with it. This was actually my very first audition that I got right at the beginning of the pandemic. Everything was sort of up in the air and we were just figuring everything out. So this was one of the first things I had. So it was extra exciting for that reason alone. But then reading it, it was just immediately something that I knew I wanted to be a part of. I fell in love with Betsy as a character. I thought her role was just so deep and honest. And I, I, I just truly fell in love with her and the show. It was actually like the most interesting sort of audition processes because I, I sent in a tape, but I had a meeting with Danny Strong, writer and, and showrunner first. And he was so immediately so nice and such a, a good presence. To, and he was just so lovely to talk to. And he was so excited about the show too. And his passion really was what got me even more excited about it. And you could just tell that he just loved this show so much and, and had a real desire to tell this story and bring it to life. And he really believed that it was a story that really deserved to be told. Most directors uh, don't ever do this or give you any insight before you send your tape on, but he was like, send it to me first, mm -hmm. um, just in case, and, and I'll pass along my notes, and then you can send it on to your agent. So I was like, that's so cool. He was just immediately like a friend and a pal, and I just loved him. So then I just wanted to be a part of it so bad. I ended up booking it. And then, yeah, we shot it pretty quickly after that. And I had an incredible time making it in Virginia. And uh, in terms of like coming on to a project like that, I think, you know, ever since I did Unbelievable, being a part of that project really showed me like what you can really do with the work that you attach yourself to and you can um, really make a difference with the projects that you bring to life. And um, I really, that be, became really apparent when that show came out and it touched so many lives and allowed a lot of people to feel really seen by that show. And I knew immediately that Dope Sick was a story like that. It was a story that really deserved to be told. And I was nothing but excited to take on that role and, and dive into it. And so Betsy is sort of like the the face of how a person could become addicted to opiates. Like her journey is really showing how that happens to someone. She gets injured at a coal mine during her job and gets on the medication that way and, and then becomes addicted. And from what I understand, is she's not based on one real person. She's sort of a composite of of that story. So how did you all decide, cause she's really fleshed out, you know, I think there's a lot to this character and, and how did you work with Danny to make sure, you know, she really felt like a, a real person? I had a lot of conversation with, with Danny ahead of time before shooting. I had also done a lot of research on addiction a couple of years ago when I did 
beautiful boy. And so I had already kind of had this like head start in the research department, but this was, I, I wanted to better understand, like there's a lot of like clinical facts on addiction and on how specifically oxy will affect somebody. But I, I really wanted to um, have more knowledge on how it really like affected someone on emotional on an emotional level. And so it was really about it was really a day to day conversation with Danny. I also ended up meeting someone actually that was um, shared a similar story to Betsy's. And this person was a huge part in my preparation process. But I think, you know, Betsy is, a, is an example of someone who is literally not prepared for what's to come in her life. And she didn't ask for any of it. You know, she was a, she's a hardworking coal miner that got a back injury and got prescribed medicine from her doctor. And um, the way Danny wrote her as a character, he is such a brilliant writer. You know, and when I talk about our like day-to-day -day conversation, it was, it was really like, day-to-day -day figuring it out. And, um, you know, I also, there was so much, because it's TV, we didn't have the chance to, we didn't really get the opportunity to shoot it in order. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I had such an attachment to her and I felt such a big responsibility playing this character. I felt like I had to give my 100% energy and um, I ended up creating a spreadsheet with my sister's help <laughs> because I wanted to really keep track of the level of withdrawals that she's going through throughout her journey. And when the show is all put together, you know, we really do see her in so many different states. And that's another thing that I learned about addiction is that it really isn't black and white. And um, so in order to keep track of the different emotion and different levels of withdrawals that she was going through, I, I kept, I literally kept a spreadsheet that I would keep on me at all times so that I could refer back to it, you know, when we were shooting day to day on set so that I could keep track of where she was at emotionally. Oh, that's interesting. Which another part of this character that I thought was especially powerful is is about Betsy being queer and there's a really powerful conversation she has with her father at one point. And, and I'm curious how that aspect of the character came together. Was it something Danny had written and, and it just felt like part of her story as well? Yeah, it was, it was just a part of who she was, which I thought was really beautiful. And I, again, like this is a story that deserved to be told in so many different reasons, for so many different reasons. But I think that being a part of queer representation is is always incredible. And I think we need more of it in TV and film. And uh, I was really honored to bring that to life here. Yeah. And I think w this show aired long enough ago that we can probably talk about how Betsy's story ends in, on the show. And, and I'm curious what that was like for you to shoot, sort of knowing that her story was gonna end in such a tragic way? I think that, um, again, I wanted to be as realistic as I possibly could with this role. 
and um, really trying to put myself in this person's shoes. And part of that was, again, just like really easy because of Danny's writing and, and how brilliant he is again. But then I was surrounded by such incredible actors, people that I like really, really admire and look up to. And, you know, it, again, it was such an honor playing this character and being a part of this show. And I think what's really wonderful about this show is that they're really reframing the narrative of addiction by not really sugarcoating anything. Mm -hmm. It's just very, very honest. And I, I think that there are so many cases like, but there are so many people out there like Betsy throughout the show and, and throughout the release of the show and, and slowly seeing people react and, and see the show and, and reach out to me about it, you realize that this is not some small issue. This is a really, really, really big problem in America. And um, there are people that have children they have lost because of oxy and overdose. And the rates are just continuing to grow. And again, it was just, I think it, her story is really, really heartbreaking, but it, it just was another part of the show that made it, made it very real. And I was just really, really grateful to be a part of it. That was actually my next question was about the reaction that you've gotten now that the show is out. Have you heard a lot of people's sort of personal stories? Has there been anything surprising about what you've heard or how people have reacted to this character? Yeah, I mean, I was so grateful that we were actually able to shoot in Virginia in the heart of where this epidemic started or really began. And um, even when we were shooting the show, I had people that were a part of our crew coming up to me and sharing their stories and being so grateful that they get to be a part of telling that story too. And that was really a big moment for me and, and just, again, made me so, made me feel so lucky to be able to not only do what I love, which is obviously acting and, and, and work with such incredible people, but then also to be a, part of allowing just at least one person to feel seen by something is just really, it's just really, really cool. And I feel just incredibly lucky. But even since the show's release, I've had so many people reach out and, and there's just been an outpour of, of love for the show. And it's just been really cool to see because again, there were so many people that were a part of our, our cast and crew that really did care so much about this story and had and, and shared a, a similar passion for the characters. And um, it's been really, really special. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really proud of everybody. I'm curious for you, you know, you mentioned Unbelievable, which I thought was another really wonderful performance of yours. But when you look at roles like that, where the material is heavy and, and there is this level of responsibility with the stories you're telling, do these sort of performances or these roles stick with you after you're done? I mean, how do you sort of move on once something like this is done and you're, you're on to your next project or back to your normal life? I think with, especially with roles like Marie in Unbelievable and Betsy in Dope Sick, and yeah, there's a huge responsibility that comes with taking on that kind of role. And 
but I feel like, you know, on, on working on a show like that, that especially like just on the daily feeling exhausted or tired or feeling just emotionally drained by a certain scene or especially on both Unbelievable and Dope Sick, I really kept myself in check with, with the idea that whatever hard day I'm having today, how no matter how exhausted I feel, it doesn't compare to the people that actually are going through addiction have to go through or doesn't even compare to the people who had, have dealt with sexual assault. It doesn't even compare to, to people that have actually gone through it. And um, when I take on you know, a role like Betsy, I, I just feel like I have to give everything I have to these characters because the story means so much more than me. And so because of that, I think it is, I think it is hard to let it go at the end of a day and definitely when I finish a project, it still has me thinking for a long time. But I think I'm just, you know, I'm just ultimately proud of, again, everybody that was involved. And I just I just leave, like, especially on, on Dope Sick and Unbelievable, I just left feeling really, really proud of the work that everybody did. And I couldn't wait for them to come out. Wanted to touch on the things you have coming up. I guess, what are you shooting right now? You said you're in New Orleans. I am, yes, I am in New Orleans shooting a movie called No One Will Save You. And it is a very exciting movie. I don't know how how much I'm allowed to talk about it, but Brian Duffield is um, our writer and director and he's amazing. And um, I've had a really incredible time making it so far. I, all I know is you're the lead and it's some sort of very unique action thriller, I think is all that the, the world knows of this project right now. Yes, yes, that's, <laughs> that's a good way accurate. to describe it. Yeah. Um, so I know you have that and you also have Rosaline, which you're also the lead in, which is a, a comedy. Yeah. Sort of unique take on Romeo and Juliet. And then I know you also have the rom-com Ticket to Paradise with George Clooney and Julia Roberts coming out. So that's that's quite a sort of amazing trifecta there. Um, <laughs> I mean, what are you most excited about those three projects? Well, I think Rosalind and Ticket to Paradise are coming out like almost right around the same time. Um, mm. So I'm excited for... Rosalind has been a project I've been excited about for a very long time. It has existed in the world for quite some time. And I've always been aware of it. I've always been in love with it. And then it fell into my hands again um, very recently. And I love our director and I love the writers and the whole team is great. And I'm, it's a very, it's a very funny movie and I'm, I'm really excited for that to come out. But I'm also really excited about Ticket to Paradise to come out. They're both like really fun, comedic films that I think the world is really going to enjoy seeing right now. I stumbled on this fact, which I feel like people probably know about you, but maybe not everyone, that your dad was the voice of Barney for a, yes. a time and that your parents were ice skaters. Is this is this right? Yes. So yes. What was your upbringing like? It sounds like a unique, I don't know, profession for, for your parents. <laughs> yeah, my upbringing was awesome. <laughs> my parents were, yes, they were both figure skaters. 
And um, then when I was a, a baby, I they put me on skates like immediately. And then I also did some figure skating comp. I was a figure skater, and but then I got uh, sick of it. Like the uh, screenwriting classes, I kind of jump around a lot. It's <laughs> certain acting, but I I stuck with acting. That is something that I have stuck with for quite some time. So I think it's going okay. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, my, my parents were, it was very, it's honestly like when I tell people that my parents were figure skaters, it's always such a random fact, but it, I love it so much. And it's, it's how they, they met each other and they've been together for many, many years. And, um, but yeah, right around my, my dad was, was a coach. Both of them were figure skating. They, they went on to teach, um, and yeah, he randomly got the job for the voice of Barney. And then that's how I um, grew up uh, in Texas because the Barney production is out of Dallas, Texas. So that's what moved us over there. And then I, my childhood was spent in Dallas. We lived in a suburban town outside of Dallas called The Colony. And um, I, I am so grateful that I grew up there because I just I just loved the neighborhood I loved my school I loved my sisters loved it so much and yeah my upbringing was very 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 great where is your ice skating drama film or comedy is it coming (laughs) (laughs) I mean you know it's I mean that can happen that can (laughs) that can happen and I I can skate so that's that's a plus And now we're going to go to my interview with Jared Leto, who played Adam Newman on the Apple series We Crashed, uh, in a role that I think in some ways was kind of tailor-made to him. He's a movie star. He's used to having, you know, a lot of influence. He's used to being on a stage, as in his rock band. Um, And he is known for diving really deep into his characters. Um, And that's something I think he's really aware of, of of his reputation for maybe staying in character on set and maybe, you know, taking his investment in the character really far. And I thought it was really interesting in our conversation that he wanted to emphasize, like, he wants to do the best work he can. He wants to show up prepared. Um, And I think the results really show in We Crashed and this performance he's giving as, you know, a guy who convinced a whole lot of people to put a whole lot of money into a company that was really just a leasing company for offices and convinced him it was tech. And he pulled off not not quite a scam, but a real ambitious effort that collapsed in front of his eyes. Rebecca, you watch We Crashed, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's some of his best work. And, you know, he got a lot of criticism for House of Gucci. So it's really cool to see him follow that up with this. And, and I'm curious what else he had to sort of say about becoming Adam Newman. Well, and he talked about Hasaguchi, too, and how he was kind of playing this larger-than-life character in a movie that was larger than life. But I think that his character in Hasaguchi was maybe in a slightly different movie than everybody else. And I Mm -hmm. think in We Crashed, his Adam Newman is really creating the world that surrounds him. And he's so perfectly in sync with the show, as well as Anne Hathaway, who's playing his wife, Rebecca. Um, I loved We Crashed a lot, and I was so happy to get the chance to talk to him about it. So let's listen to my conversation with Jared Leto. And actually, one more thing. Katie's on the road, so I'm filling in with a quick note. I'm Brett Fuchs, the producer of Little Gold Men. During this recording, we had some technical difficulties for about the first 10 minutes or so, but we were able to fix it, and then we went back and cleaned things up as much as we could. And we decided to leave a lot of that stuff in. So thank you for your patience during those sections, and please enjoy. 
Well, thank you for coming to uh, talk to me about We Crashed. We did a whole podcast series on our other podcast still watching. So I watched every episode twice, I think, um, and had so many thoughts about it. And I'm uh, really uh, grateful to get to talk to you about it again. Um, But I'm curious for you, you know, I just watched the show. You wrapped it about a year ago. How how did it feel for you watching it roll out? How much did you pay attention? And does it now feel like it's fully over for you? It doesn't feel like it's fully over because we're still talking about it. I mean, I'm still working out what my thoughts are on the project and the experience. But this one was really special. It was really different because of the amount of time it took to make it. And I absolutely loved every single second of it. Did you pay attention to how people responded when the show aired? I'm not even reading reviews, but social media reactions, what people thought of your performance. Do you, how much of that do you track? I try not to get involved with much of that, but you get a sense of how things are, whether you want to or not. You know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of get a sense if, if something kind of hits a nerve or if a performance works. So um, that's enough for me. I'm, I'm too <laughs> sensitive uh, to, to dive into reviews and, 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 and that stuff. I, I think that I, I have a pretty good sense of if I'm achieving what, I'm, what I set out to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I give myself plenty of opportunity to fail both day in, day out and with the project. I mean, I, I'm interested in taking really big swings. And, you know, when you do that, you're, you're going to miss and sometimes you, you win and, and you have things work and that's wonderful. But I think it's important to give yourself the freedom to fail. I wanted to ask you about that failure because you talked to my colleague Julie Miller a few months ago and talked about being Adam Newman when you weren't on camera to kind of figure out the character and how a lot of that was failure. And I'm curious about when it's, you know, you're not on screen, you're not working for a director, you're on your own. How do you know when something is a failure when you're trying to, to tap into who the character is on your own time when the camera's not rolling? I like to do a lot of research and I like to be really prepared, overprepared. You know, when you walk onto a film set and there's a couple hundred people there, it's your job to deliver no matter what. If it's five in the morning and you got very little sleep and you're supposed to step on your mark and, you know, have an emotional breakdown uh, and you haven't even had a cup of coffee, that's your job and you have to deliver. So I like to do my my practice beforehand. And, I, and, and in that practice, you know, when you're sitting with dialogue, when you're sitting with character, when you're experimenting, when you're doing research and pulling things that you may have found um, in that rehearsal, in that practice is, is, is a great place to look for things that you think might work. And of course, when you get up on the day, that can all change. But I always try to come in with some ammunition so that I'm not left empty handed. And so when you've done the when you've done that work on your own, um, how do you communicate that when you're coming onto the set? Like, do you have do you come and do you discuss the work that you've done ahead of time with the directors, with the writers? Or is it really just something you bring internally? All the above. Mm. I mean, if there are things that I'm excited about trying that require some preparation, of course, you want to let people know so that you don't make people's lives more complicated. Mm. And I have to say, you know, right up there with being prepared and 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 working as hard as I can, I, I do believe it's also my job to show up and be as kind as possible, to be as collaborative as possible, to be supportive and to be of service of the other actors, of the writer, of the director, 
because it's it it takes a team, you know. Mm-hmm. There, and 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 on this one especially, I mean, the grips and the PAs and the people that worked, I was just struck so often by how hard people were working and the contributions they made so that we can all do our jobs you know not to get too like altruistic or something but it 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 was quite a beautiful uh thing to be a part of really really special and making it during covid too like the stakes are so high in terms of everyone doing exactly the job they have to do yeah it, it it was wild because we were in new york city and it was you know basically a ghost town at that time too yeah. but anyway you know I, sometimes there are things that you want to keep to yourself and try out whether it's an improvisation or an ad lib or something like that and sometimes you want people to be in cahoots so it really depends but i'm big on being prepared there's no worse feeling we've all had those dreams before that you know we have to give a speech or to stand on stage. I actually had one the other night hmm. uh, that I was going on tour um, with 30 Seconds to Mars and I, I had to get up and do the first show and I haven't sung in so in a couple of years <laughs> and I was, <clears throat> I was hoping my voice would be there. And, you know, those kind of dreams can be a reality when you're an actor. It's good to be prepared and especially in this case with Adam Newman, because he was so verbose. He gave a lot of speeches. Words were his superpower, as they may have said in the show. And, you know, and in this project, um, the dialogue is the action, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, so my colleague Gabe Sherman reported on the end of WeWork back in 2019, and the headline of it said something like, you don't bring bad news to the cult leader. And I wondered if that term for Adam Newman, cult leader, felt right to you in terms of his power with words and his charisma and how he stood on stage. Does does that feel right for Adam? I mean, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, you know, but it's, uh, <laughs> I think he had cult of personality. Mm. Um, he had an enormous, enormous amount of power uh, within his company. And I think people were in awe of this immigrant who came to America and built a company from nothing into a $47 billion empire. And he was really charismatic. And in a world of, of you know, startups where you have a lot of engineers become CEOs, you know, charisma isn't always, these are people that are introverted oftentimes, people that have spent a lot of time alone coding and working. And not every CEO has that charisma. And he certainly... I mean, I talked to CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world that knew, that met Adam or had meetings with him or knew him and and still said, after all that was said and done, still said he was one of the most compelling and charismatic and confident people they had ever met. Um, watching We Crash as it goes on and watching Adam and Rebecca both kind of become more more powerful and also more famous, I couldn't not think about how this works in Hollywood as well, like how fame kind of puts you in a different world and a different sphere and people talk to you differently and you get away with more. Those parallels track for you? Do you see, not even necessarily what's happened to you, but, you know, this industry that you know well, do you think what happened to them is a similar thing that happens to people who get famous and maybe aren't ready for the power it holds? Uh it's certainly a wild world we're living in with um, social and the speed at which people achieve fame, if that's an achievement. I've always mm-hmm. thought of fame as a byproduct of the work that you do, that you happen to love. 
but I, I try to focus on the on the creative work and and that's where I find my reward in life and you know I'm, I'm grateful that I've gotten to uh, spend my life doing this and, and in recent times the gratitude keeps going up and I'll, some of the other things you know with some of the um, discontent or the frustration with my abilities gets a little quieter and um, I just have more gratitude to be able to to work and and to do what I've been doing it's a it's a beautiful thing you know what's made that gratitude go up is it pandemic is it other things that made that change I think probably old age mm. I think um, getting older you know looking at my mother as well and sharing that that this journey with her and my brother probably and and seeing how you know I think COVID and probably is a great opportunity to see how fragile life can be mm-hmm. and and the life that we love can be I'm always interested in people who have been working for a long time like you have and in so many different phases of your life about how getting older affects the way that you approach the work that you can do. And, you know, you're in a position where you can make choices. And I wonder if you choose roles differently as you get older or if you look at what you're able to do with them differently or if it's more general, you know, life perspective. I think so. I think when you're young, you're out to, you you know, prove to yourself that you're capable and that you have something to offer. You have you have a desire to contribute in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I've felt those things. And I think as I've gotten older, you know, I, I don't need to do, you know, I'm quite content. Like I would love to do a comedy, you know, mm-hmm. I'd never had that thought when I was younger. Um, mm-hmm. I was always interested in drama. I grew up watching those films of like, you know, the late sixties and seventies and eighties that the tours and the, the, the films that changed my life, um, you know, people like Al Pacino, who I just had the, the opportunity to work with, Denzel Washington, of course, De Niro and Christopher Walken and all these incredible actors of that era. Um, but I, I think like, as far as like the choices that we make, yeah, I, I would love to do something that's, you know, uh, it'd be fun to do something romantic at some mm-hmm. point. So we were saying romantic comedy, putting the. the I mean, two I would do a romantic. Everybody always <laughs> jokes about that, but, uh, but you just said romance and comedy. It's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> but a rom com would be hilarious. Yeah, you know what would be the funniest part is actually going out to promote it and talking about it, which would be the funniest part. <laughs> Why? Because you have to talk about like romance and for yourself. No, just or... just the opposite. Because so much of my career has been, you know, people would be so like, so. <laughs> going on here the opposite <laughs> like opposite reconnaissance or whatever they called that <laughs> oh you and... you were right in the middle of the reconnaissance i was i was peak reconnaissance <laughs> i was um, first-hand seats to but i think actually thing. the opposite reconnaissance is the best route because as you get older you just like somebody told me the other day he called it making those rom-coms was like every day was a sunday <laughs> sounds great right is it the best thing? I mean, my God, every day is a Sunday. I would love to sit on a beach in Hawaii and just like, you know, be silly and have have a nice uh, time. But it's also not easy being light on screen, I think. I think being, you know, 
effortlessly charismatic is really effortful. I think a lot of actors look. Will if say I that. could do it, I probably would have done it by now. <laughs> I'm certainly not effortlessly charismatic. Never have been. Like there are people out there that are just so good at being subtle and being themselves, and really, I'm. We're all happy for them just to keep doing that, you know, because they're so like they're so compelling. Yeah. I have to like beg and grovel and, you know, work myself to the bone just to squeeze out something halfway uh, deserving. Uh, but maybe you get to a certain point where you just have some, you've cobbled together some charm and you get your teeth fixed. So you, and then you go out and you're just like, you got a billion dollar smile and y you know, you can kill it. But yeah, I do think that that's probably under, appreciated the 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 subtleties in and and delivering some of the you know the best of what that stuff is what kind of comedy would you want to make like what what's a comedy you've seen where you're like that that's the thing that i would want to do i think i'd love to do something like being there mm -hmm. you know uh some like P peter sellers um you know that that would be really fun to send up a character or to do the character work, but really just be it, pa Paolo really touches on some of that Paolo mm -hmm, Gucci mm -hmm. for me, where it's, it's obviously a, a very big performance purposefully. So, and it's in, at times almost like representational. It's not, you know, um, always uh, naturalistic. And, and I'm kind of interested in that, you know, in a world we have, you know, back in the day when you have a Marlon Brando doing something so different, if you showed Marlon Brando to a kid now, they'd be like, well, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In some ways, in, in those first few films, they would be like, you know, it's hard to understand the context of which he started doing what because he was Because he was doing. the first one, and now everyone does what he one. did, yeah. So in some ways, it's interesting to kind of go back to something else and, uh, you know, explore something presentational, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I and and Paolo was a kind of a, a play into some of that for me, um, but I think it would be really fun to do uh, a flat out comedy and uh, I don't know maybe a comedy romantic is in my. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the the transformational power of of Adam Newman because Paolo, like you're you know saying, is is big and a really different look for you, and Adam is less so, but. The contacts, I think, have a huge impact. And I think there were other prosthetics involved, too. And I'm curious about transforming yourself less obviously dramatically, but how much that still does for you in terms of becoming somebody else. It's hard to be subtle with a lot of things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and with Adam Newman, the work that we did to help support the transformation was subtle and uh, it took a lot of work. It took a great team and we had a phenomenal team as usual i've been very lucky with with the teams the hair and makeup um and you know actors we spend more time with hair and makeup than almost anybody you know oh, yeah. it's a very intimate experience and this one especially when you're doing this kind of work hours and hours every day and i've heard uh daniel day lewis um he referred to it as mask work Mm -hmm. Which is interesting. Like, like a theater school. Yeah, yeah, like theater. And, you know, someone was telling me um, that the earliest actors would would wear masks. Um, and the mask was interesting because it not only concealed the actors, so it provided the audience with some belief or disbelief, but uh, not only concealed the actors, but it also revealed something. Um, mm -hmm. 
and and we see that in culture, not just with acting. You see it in, in Halloween. You see it in in at Burning Man. You know, you put on a costume, all of a sudden you get in touch with this primal side of your yeah. self, and and you maybe you're a little free, maybe you're a little funny, or maybe the person at the office who's a little bit straight laced gets dressed up for Halloween, and all of a sudden he's a little bit he's the life of the the party. But uh, yeah, the mask work is interesting, and and in the case of Adam. It had its challenges, too, because I found it was fairly close to me. Mm-hmm. And when you're working close, even if you just change the eyes, well, you see so much that you're used to of me that it, it's harder to kind of forgive or forget the, you know, that a, a small change sometime, mm-hmm. sometimes. So that took some work and some, um, and also we, we started, of course, with much more in, in the preparation and then had to kind of whittle it down and make some tough decisions about what we were going to be able to pull off in the amount of time we had for the mm-hmm. length of shooting. Yeah. So it was really like prep time, day in, uh, day out, and and then um, and then the amount of time we're shooting that that helped make the decision, and 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 then of course the creative result. Is there something that feels more vulnerable about it when you're look when you're transforming yourself that still looks more like you? Do you almost wish you had more of the the mask work like you were saying? Well, I mean I'm so used to it. It's it's such a part of what I do. But the biggest transformation is really on the inside. You can put a bunch all the prosthetics on, but if you don't have the the heart, the soul, the spirit, it's just a bunch of plastic. Sure. You know, if I just put it on and I was like, I showed up and said, hey, guys, how you doing? Um, wait, what's my line? You know, it, it you're not going to get anything from that, except it's probably would look unreal. You know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. even buy it because you have to have the other stuff. You have to have as well the voice and the different way of, of moving and talking and walking, sometimes breathing, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it has to there has to be some unity, some synergy. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all seen examples of the like the, the makeup being the mask and it doesn't make any sense with what's going on on the yeah. inside. It's, it's, you can spot it even if you're not an actor. You kind of feel it watching something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw when you were talking again to my colleague, Julie, a few months ago, you were talking about how you're you kind of start keeping more of your process to yourself because I think the way that people talk about it, you felt had gotten kind of taken on a life of its own. Is that still something you want to do? You've been very generous talking to me about it, but I wonder if you're still trying to put up a a boundary there to keep things to yourself if it's not being understood the way you want it to. Well, it's also simple to me, you know, mm. it, like in the, in the way we're talking about it, it's all kind of practical. There's no, I think there's a certain assumption that if you work in a certain way, you're like a weirdo and you're running around uh, doing crazy things all the time. And I, I just don't work like that. You yeah. know, if people were to talk to any director, first of all, I wouldn't be, people wouldn't hire me. Yeah. People wouldn't be excited to work with me. Yeah. You know, my fellow actors wouldn't be uh, so supportive and lovely about the experience. You, you know, certainly not in this day and age, but there there is a certain difficulty in talking about certain things because they become so titillating, mm-hmm. uh, which to me is always really silly um especially at my age it's like <laughs> you know it's it's just all kind of corny to me to be honest mm-hmm. like I, I i don't walk around ever in my life really believing i'm someone else mm-hmm. uh I, that would be amazing if you did 
but you can fall into the habits, you can fall into character, you can fall into behavior, you can practice an accent. And and for me, I make choices and decisions really based on the practicality of it. You know, and you know, if I want to practice an accent, like if you're working on a set, you know, most of your day you're not in front of the camera with a camera rolling. Yeah. Oh, it's actually yeah. a small percentage of your day. So you have a choice of how you're gonna use the rest of your day. I like to use the time. I'm at work, like a lot of other people in the world, I'm working. Uh, you know, you, you can check your phone if you want. You can listen to music if you want. That's great. Okay, do whatever you want. But I like to try to use the time to practice. Uh, so my whole thing is really just about practicing. And, um, you know, I kind of reject the term method acting because it's just been so perverted and misunderstood. And it's yeah. just this thing that people like, oh, you know, uh, get so weird about. But uh, I, I just like to be as focused and prepared as possible. And and like I said before, I, I really take it, it's, it's an important thing to me to be the best partner that I can, to be kind and considerate, collaborative, and to be of service of others. And I enjoy that. You know, I enjoy, if there's a day player that, come, that comes in, you know, that has a line, I love to take that line and turn it into five. Mm-hmm. Take the five and turn it into ten. By the end of the day, a person did, you know has a, a, a whole part that's uh, much richer than maybe they they expected. Um, I love that kind of stuff, and and you know to be able to get to a place where you can do that and not ask permission to include someone or to play around uh, and to be creative with another artist. Uh, especially one that might be coming up or one that's, you know, contributing, uh, you know, on a, in a, uh, for a day like that. That's a that's a beautiful thing. I love that. Yeah, I mean, we crashed, got the ensemble, like when you start going down the bench, the people in the office and then the finance guys, like you guys got to play Insane. off of so many great people Insane. on the show. And I, I have to tell you, it touches me deeply and uh, again, fills me with gratitude that we we had the opportunity to have so many incredible actors I mean, people would come in, and it's a testament. It's just that culture in New York of, of like, and I mean, maybe I would find it in L.A., but I just never had this experience where there were so many people that came in, and it's hard to come in with a line or two. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, you know, I'm sure world word travels, and, like, people, we're going for it here, you know. Annie Hathaway's, she's a pro. You know, you you don't show up on set with her not prepared because you know you're going to miss an opportunity to do something special that you hopefully will be proud of. But so many actors came in and were just hilarious and so unexpectedly, you know, unique. And it for me it was beautiful. And I was, you know, we did so much improvisation on this this show. And you know, th- so thankful to Lee and Drew for keeping that creative door open so that we could all play and, um, and experiment. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular episode. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. How about you, Rebecca? Becca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at subtext, join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7035. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. 